Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. I need to take a seat, church. Great to be with you on a warm Sunday afternoon wearing an unseeable black. If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. He's on it. Hey, guys, uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at Encounter. And if we haven't met before, uh, it's great to see you. Hopefully we can catch you after the service. Uh, and I just want to say hello to many of my pastor friends who are here today. I, d- I don't know why over the last couple of weeks, like Encounter's a place where pastors come on holidays. I love it. So, so Matt here somewhere, I swear, it's like, hey, Matty, Matt from Seeds, Ash from Clovey, Dan Harksman's here, all the way from near... Bryant, you're here every week and... <laughs> You're retired. You're retired. But I tell you what, if this was 10 years ago, you watch the honour I'd be giving you. It would have been amazing. We love you, <laughs> it is, uh, It's great to be in the house of God today. I, um, Jenny said something before about Connect Cards, and what I find tends to happen at the start of the year, pastor friends excluded from the conversation, um, is people are checking out checking out churches, they're checking out faith, they're they're wondering, you know, maybe you've made a New Year's resolution, I encourage that, great work, but if you're going to continue through with a New Year's resolution, you need to put some continuity behind it. So I want to encourage you, number one, stick around for the rest of this series, which is through January, or if if January is for you like it is for many others, that is maybe going a whole day or something, just try and stick around for about a four-week period, It'll, it'll help you work out whether this is the place God's calling you to. And at the same time, if you've been around church for a little bit, please fill in a Connect card. We cannot communicate with you without that. Uh, We need that in order to be able to connect you in with the life of the church. And no matter what you've ever been told, you do not do church by yourself. In fact, by definition, that's what church is, is the people of God, the called out ones. So that's what we are doing together. It's something you come to alone, but you can't do by yourself, which is something I learned from Tim Littleford's. 20 things he learned in his 20s that he posted. Great blog post. He turned 30 yesterday, Pastor Tim. And he wrote that, I believe, for our treasurer, Josh Brooks, who turned 30 today. So hopefully Josh learned those and implemented them yesterday, Tim. Hey, Otherwise, uh, oh well. Oh well. Anyway, we good? Can we get in the word? Is that all right? All right. Joshua chapter 2 today, verses 8 to 14. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings, you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to death, them, and save us from death. The men answered her, we will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us this land. This is God's word. All right. 
It's, uh, it's not often that you preach about a woman who is involved in prostitution, but you know that at least it's going to be less sexually awkward than last week. <laughs> That's unusual. Um, but Jacob did an incredible job preaching on Tamar. Who thinks Jacob did an amazing job last week? It was a great, great word. But tonight we preach on Rahab from Joshua chapter 2, and we're doing that as part of a series we call Lineage. And um, it's very funny talking to Jacob about this, because all of us have one message each, and we're sort of involved in it and looking at it. And then as we step back and realise that we're doing all these messages of these women involved in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, they all kind of bear a bit of a stigma about them. It's like, oh, one at a time, that's not so bad, but four in a row is quite a lot. Hmm, that, that was, that's interesting. But the reason we're doing this is because it is deeply important to examine the question of not just who are these women, but why were they highlighted in Matthew's genealogy? I mean, I'm going to get to it later, but there are a lot of women in the history of Jesus. You'll be not stunned to know roughly the same amount as men. That's how that works, in, you know, biologically. Uh, but... Because in a Jewish patriarchal society, you only did son of, son of, son of, you had just men, the fact that these women are highlighted is fascinating. And it says something about the nature of God, the actions and the character of these women, and it tells us something about ourselves that we can learn today. So let's jump right into Joshua 2 and a bit of background, because the story of Rahab is really pretty much the first we hear in the book of Joshua as Israel enters the promised land. They've spent several books earlier wandering around the desert, dealing with their own sin, coming to terms with what it means to be the people of God. And finally, they're about to enter the promised land. They're finally claiming their inheritance. There's one little problem. There are a lot of people in the land already. And so Joshua sends spies to scope out the lay of the land and specifically the city of Jericho, which was a significant city in Canaan. Now, Jericho is probably the oldest continually inhabited settlement in the world. Right? Archaeologists believe it was settled around 9000 BC. It's pretty old. By the time the Israelites got there, Jericho was already a well-established city. It's thought that it might have been a location of worship to lunar gods, moon gods. So ancient pagans believed that the lunar gods controlled the seasons and their agriculture. And if they control your agriculture, they control your income. So that's very important. Importantly for our story, Jericho also contains archaeological evidence of the oldest known protective wall in the world. A wall that Israel had to knock down in order to take Jericho and would famously become part of the story of Jericho. So these spies, they sneak into Jericho. And as foreigners who would stand out in a city of that size in uh, you know, the early uh, Middle East, they make sure they go to a place that is welcoming of all men, regardless of their background. They go to a brothel. Let's take a minute to look at prostitution in the Bible, given the very different culture we live in today. Now, much like in the story of Tamar that we heard last week, it's important that we understand that prostitution has never been acceptable in the eyes of God. Okay? I'm going to explain a few things about that today. In the law given by Moses in Leviticus 19, prostitution is seen as something that lessens people. And it's actually far deeper even than this. The act of prostitution is one that involves physically selling your body. Now, to do that you must make some theological statements, whether you realise it or not. I don't know if you realise, but every time you make a decision with your body, you are making a theological statement or two. You probably don't think about that at the time. The first one that you make is by selling your own body, you're saying this, my body is mine to sell, right? That's a very popular idea at the moment. My body belongs to me. But of course, logically, that's not really true. Uh, your body was formed in someone else's womb, so it belonged to them beforehand, and you are a gift from God. 
Everything we have is a gift from God. So we get these things on loan, but we've got to take care of them. And the second is one we looked at a lot last year, and it's that, that we define how we see ourselves, that our, your image is whatever you choose it to be. That's another theological statement we make if we accept prostitution. Because God says, no, 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 you're made in my image. So what we do with the human body, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying every one of these is a bad thing, but whatever choice we make about our human body, uh, what we wear, uh, how, we, how we live with sexual ethics, whether we get tattoos, what we eat or overeat or undereat, whether we self-harm or uh, have overindulgence in any kind of drug or alcohol, all of that is a theological statement on who we believe this body belongs to and which image we believe we are made in. If we think the body belongs to us, okay, well, it's hard to argue you can't do what you want with it. But if the body is ultimately a gift from God, then maybe we should take care of it in the way that God is asking us to. There's a variety of ways we have to look at that. Now, prostitution, both male and female at that time, was also linked with the worship of foreign gods. And what you see throughout the Old Testament is Baal and Asherah, these names that pop up again and again. These pagan gods that every time you come and worship with them, prostitution is inexorably linked, which is probably why they were reasonably popular gods. They're a rejection of God's good gift. It's a degrading of the human body. It's a rejection of the worship of God in order to worship our own immediate desires. 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us of this. This is what it says. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. He goes on to say, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Now, if you ever wonder why we shouldn't casually just throw the phrase sex work around, it's because there's nothing casual about it, right? Throughout generations in the past, particularly in the church, one of the problems has been we've gone very hard on this without explaining why. In the modern generation, the problem is we tend to paper over it and go like, oh, I don't, you, you've got to live your life. It's like, well, by doing that, you're leading people into harm, implicitly or explicitly. It's just no good. It's not simply an alternate version of employment. It's not sex positivity. It's sex horror on both the perpetrator and the person who is involved. Well, both are perpetrators in a sense. So don't let the culture around you encourage you to play that down. I want to start there. And in fact, Leviticus 19 says this, suggests that there's something about the behaviour of prostitution that's so damaging to the human soul that the land itself is impacted. Listen to this. Do not debase your daughter by making her a prostitute or the land uh, will be prostituted and filled with depravity. So there's a link between the attitude that leads us to prostitution and an attitude that destroys everything around us. Now, this is quite full on. Okay, welcome. Happy January. But I, I want it to be clear. I want two things to be really clear. Number one, prostitution is against the will of God. Full stop. End of sentence. Number two, how staggering an idea it would have been for God's spies to enter the promised land in his name and go into a foreign city and enter a foreign brothel. 
probably filled with shrines to foreign gods. There is basically nothing more transgressive they could have done unless they sat down there and ate a nice pork meal as well. That's about as bad as it could have gotten. It's important that we don't overlook how staggering it is, not because this is full of sin, but because right now we are listening to a message about a foreign prostitute who is celebrated as being part of the birthright of Jesus Christ. How do we get from there to there? We have no idea what went on in the brothel with the spies. And we should consider this, not cynically, a strategic decision, not a sinful one, right? I get where cynicism leads us in this. That's unhelpful. In fact, take a note, cynicism is generally unhelpful for your life. Uh, But we should consider a strategic one because logically this is the best place for foreign agents like the Jewish spies to pick up information about people they need in a hurry, in a space that they're going to be roughly accepted. But the king of Jericho discovers their presence. And so he sends a messenger to Rahab to bring out the spies and bring them to him. Now, Rahab has a choice here. It seems like a pretty easy choice, honestly. Uh, Choice number one, the king's messenger is here asking you to give over foreign spies who have come to your city with a stated aim to destroy the city. And probably if you give them to me, you'll get a reward. Or option two, don't. She chooses option two. She hides the the spies. She lies to the messenger. The messenger goes on a wild goose chase out to the hills and Rahab goes up to have a heart-to-heart with the spies, which was the teaching text we heard today. Now, she says that she knows that God has given them this land, that the whole land is in fear over what God is about to do. This is why the king has sent a messenger for the spies. He is stressed out. So she asks for mercy, but not just for her, but for her whole family. She becomes, as we'll hear next week, a kind of kinsman redeemer, a saviour for her family. And she asks the Hebrew spies to pledge this by God. She doesn't say, promise me, because guess what? She's a prostitute. How many false promises do you think she has heard from men in her life? One or two, I would wager, one or two. So she doesn't go, hey, promise me you'll come back and... Pay me later. Promise me you'll do the right thing. No, no. She says, swear by your God. I I can't trust your name. I can't trust your promises. But I want you to swear by the person who I can trust in. She says, I don't trust your best intentions. I don't trust your best actions. Swear to me by the Lord, Rahab says. So she asks that God bear witness to them and take responsibility for that decision. In essence, she asks that, look, guys, I'm sure you're going to do your best. I'm sure you're going to save me. But you know what? I'm going to take my chances with God rather than you guys. So I'm going to put my faith in the trust of the God of the Hebrews, not in you. So by saving these men, Rahab becomes an agent of salvation, but she's living in a city marked for destruction. She's on borrowed time and she has to put her salvation in somebody else. Jericho is done for and she knows it, but she doesn't put her faith in the spies. She puts her faith in God. Now, it's all very well for the spies to promise freedom, but how are they going to know who's the one to set free? I mean, it's two spies and it's an entire army of thousands of Hebrew soldiers. Uh, More than that, we hear that Rahab's house is built into the wall and spoilers, the wall is not going to last much longer. So how are they going to find out who is this, spot, who is this uh, prostitute Rahab that has saved their men and become an agent of salvation? Well, a scarlet cord hanging from the window is what the spies say. That is what will identify Rahab. That's a pretty interesting idea. 
How do, you, how do you want to be identified? Well, by the scarlet cord. Because red is a colour strongly associated with prostitution and promiscuity. I'll pause here for a moment so that if you've worn red today, you can feel uncomfortable about yourself. <laughs> Maybe you're at home and you're wearing red today. No, no, I'm, t- I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's fine. But think about it. You know, it, it's a colour that's been associated with like shiny red dresses and bright red lipstick and the red light district in Amsterdam and everything else. And of course, the song rocks in. You don't have to put out your red light. I can't do the next bit. Yeah, the sell you, sell your body. I can't get there. <laughs> to the night. So either it could be a bit of a joke by the spies, or it could be the opposite, something that goes unnoticed by the authorities because you put some, something red in the window of a prostitute and they're like, yeah, well, we knew already, but I guess she's advertising differently at the moment. Or it could be something deeper entirely. By placing a scarlet cord over the entry to her home, Rahab is echoing something that happened earlier in the life of the Israelites. In an ancient Hebrew tradition that dates back to their captivity in Egypt called the Passover. And the Passover festival celebrates the Israelites escaping from Egypt when the angel of death passed over their houses and killed the firstborn sons of Egypt. How did the angel know which houses to avoid with the blood? The Israelites smeared the blood of an unblemished lamb on their doorposts as a sign that they belonged to God. The blood of the lamb, the blood of a sacrifice, becomes the instrument of their salvation. So in the same way, Rahab hangs a red cord out the window that the spies went out. The window of salvation becomes an instrument of her salvation, echoing the Passover. The scarlet cord is the same cord that could associate her with this despised and denigrated profession but instead it becomes an instrument of liberation to Rahab. Now, the rest of the text in Joshua 2 really kind of just tells the end of the story of the spies hiding in the hills, returning to the Hebrew camp, reporting back to Joshua. We don't hear about what happens to Rahab until Joshua chapter 6, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But as Jacob mentioned last week, and as I mentioned earlier, every one of the women highlighted in the genealogy of Jesus has some kind of sexual stigma attached to them. Rahab's is probably the most obvious But the Bible doesn't hide from this idea. In fact, if anything, it seems to kind of delight in it. Like there are plenty of women in Jesus' genealogy who have a bigger name, like they are more more famous and who do not have a sexual stigma attached to them. Take Sarah and Rebecca, for example, the wives of the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, very, very famous in the life of Israel. And Matthew's gospel in particular is to Jewish people. It is directed to a Jewish audience predominantly. Yet Matthew takes great pains to pull out these women that, with the exception of Mary, were probably all non-Jewish, right? We'll get to that in the next couple of weeks. Sarah and Rebecca aren't mentioned in the genealogy. Don't worry about them. And Rahab, of all the women mentioned, is the most personally unrighteous. The Bible does not speculate on the motives of Rahab for entering prostitution, right? On one hand, if you're one kind of person, you could go, well, she was probably forced into it by a situation. And if you're another kind of person, you could go, well, she chose that. That's her responsibility. Nobody knows if either of you are right. So don't worry about your opinion on it. It doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't tell us that. What the Bible tells us is what Rahab did. And so Rahab has this situation where you've got Tamar last week who's personally mistreated. I'm not going to spoil the stories of Ruth and Bathsheba, but fair to say they're not really in the wrong. They don't have the same behaviours and choices as Rahab did. And Mary, of course, did no wrong, but she suffers the whispers and stigma of uh, people around her. It's almost like God enjoys taking tales of the broken 
and filling them with hope. Rahab, though, she's a foreign prostitute. And remember that foreign in this case is it's less about your ethnicity and more about worshipping foreign gods, being set against the God of Israel. It's about as far away from Mary as you can imagine, right? Like on one hand, you've got a prostitute selling her body for money. On the other hand, you've got the Virgin Mary, who is so importantly a virgin that V is capitalised and that we know her not as Mary, but as the Virgin Mary. Like, can you imagine kids in high school experiencing that on a day-to-day basis? That would, that would be a rough title. There's no question that virginity in the Bible before marriage is seen as honoured and encouraged, that a body is to be set apart for him. We also read in the Bible that after Mary was married to Joseph, but before the birth of Jesus, they didn't sleep together. They waited until after Jesus was born to consummate the marriage. And we know they did consummate the marriage because Jesus had brothers and sisters. Mary was a woman who was deeply righteous in the way she used her body. Rahab clearly was not. Rahab has a history. A foreign prostitute is included into God's family, into the royal line of King David, into the birth of Jesus Christ himself. Why? Like, this should be the question. Why is God doing this? Like, is this how you would set it up if you were running things? Like, oh, I'm trying to get, yeah, the best possible bloodlines. Um, let's try and make sure that we're setting up with the best for the future. Yeah, let's include a pagan, worshipping, foreign prostitute. What do we think about that? Yeah, we'll, we'll involve that. And before you go, that's obviously a terrible idea. Just remember that when like the Russians and English have tried to manipulate bloodlines, it hasn't gone that well, really. So maybe God knows what he's talking about. Why? Why is a foreign prostitute included into God's family? There's one word. Faith. Rahab is a woman of faith. Rahab is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, the famous hall of faith, where the only people mentioned are people of enormous faith, where the writer of Hebrews gets partway through and then he goes, honestly, I don't have time to tell you all about the other people of faith, but I just needed to mention Rahab because that's how much faith she had. This is really important to catch because Rahab is a sinful woman in a corrupt and damaging industry. She lives in a life, a life in opposition to God, yet God meets her literally where she is at, in the brothel, to save her. Because she puts her trust in Him and not her circumstances. Friends, God is looking for people to put their trust in Him. People with faith to change their circumstances through what God can do in their circumstances. He says that He is who He says He is. That He will do what He promises He will do. But if all we can see is the situation we're in, whether that's our workplace, whether that's a health diagnosis, whether that's a friendship situation, if that's all we can see, we will not have the faith to allow God to lift us out of it. Rahab was in a far lower place than most people in this room will ever experience, but she had faith that God would lift her out of it. Rahab is saved by her faith, not her behaviour. God didn't come to her in the brothel and go, well, Once you've left the brothel, then we'll talk. Isn't that interesting? Because I just gave you a really lengthy explanation about how much God is against prostitution. But instead, God said, no, no, you're here and your faith is enough. Let me use that right now. Let me use the faith you've got. doesn't matter how little you feel you have. It's enough for me to use to save an entire nation of people right now. See, the outworking of faith is righteousness. Faith in God should produce obedience to God and obedience to God should produce righteousness that is right living, right behaviour, a life that honours God. It should. 
And friends, make no mistake, a life that honours God is not just about not getting God mad at you. It's about stepping into a life that God is saying, if you do this as a general rule, your life will be better than the life of someone not living in righteousness. Right? That's not the reason to do it. The primary reason to do it is faith. We trust that God is who he says he is, and he'll do what he says he'll do, and that his ways are better than our ways. This isn't just an abstract idea. It is deeply personal. It's a blessing to you from God. And speaking of blessings, how does Jesus fit into all this? Well, Jesus was born into royal blood, but he wasn't born into wealth and power. His family was under risk of judgment and persecution. As the son of God, he had everything available to him, power, authority, divinity, not bad. But he gives it up in order to live on earth as part of God's family and to create a way for them to become the family of God. So Rahab is a signpost. She's a signpost pointing to Jesus. She's a broken signpost, like we all are, a bit worn down by life, but pointing vaguely in the right direction. And God's like, you know what? I can use that. I can use that. She points to the true saviour to come because Jesus is a true and better Rahab. Where Rahab stood between the powers of destruction and the people of God, Jesus stood between death and all people. Where Rahab risked her life to set the spies free, Jesus gave his life to set you free. Where Rahab displayed a scarlet cord to gain her freedom, Jesus shed his scarlet blood to wash you of your sins. And where Rahab's faith allowed her and her family to become part of the family of God, Jesus' faith allows you and your family to become a part of his That is everything that Christ has done for you. Rahab saved the spies. Yes, Jesus saved the world. Rahab has a testimony that echoes throughout generations. Jesus has an act and a works that impacts your life right now today. Jesus is the true and better Rahab. She was a flawed person pointing towards God's future like us, but Jesus is God's better future. So by the way, who, who, who did Jesus spend all his time with on earth again? Tax collectors, drunkards, prostitutes. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And this title, there's this one criticism that Jesus wore like a badge of honour, that his enemies would call him a friend of sinners. And he said, I didn't come to heal the healthy. They don't need a hospital. I came to heal the sick the broken, the wounded. The temptation when we read a story like the story of Rahab's is to view ourselves in the position of God and go, how would I judge Rahab? Would I judge her with more compassion? Would I judge her with more uh, righteousness? Which one would I hold? Um, But you're meant to, if anything, if your best case scenario is to put yourself in the position of Rahab, a more likely scenario is to put yourself in the position of the spies who don't really do anything except get saved. That's what you bring. That's what I do. We don't put ourselves in Rahab's position because she does more than we do. She has a faith beyond what we do. I know that because she's in the Bible and you're not. (laughs) She brings an extraordinary measure of faith that makes her not just a woman to be honoured, but to be honoured in a way that says, I want you to be a part of the life of Jesus, the most important person to ever exist.
exist. There's no greater honour. See, Rahab only asked for one simple thing. She said, would you save me and my family? That might be your prayer today. Either you feel far from God and you need saving, or there's someone in your life who you're like, I just, I'm desperate for them to know Jesus for themselves. It's a real prayer. And to those in that situation, I just want to remind you that God is not done with you and he's not done with your family and he's not done with your friends. He loves them more than you do. He chases them down more than you do. He forgives more than you do. He redeems more than you do. He has more grace than you do. He doesn't stop. God doesn't stop with this stuff. And because God heard Rahab's prayer, that prayer to save me and my family, He saved her despite her. That's how God works. He saves you despite you. And where she asked for her family to be saved, that is not to be killed, he said, what if I did something a little bit different? What if instead of making sure your family doesn't die, I invited your family to be a part of mine? See, at the end of of the story of Jericho, we hear that Rahab is with Israel, but outside the camp. Joshua said, put her outside the camp because she's foreign and this is is just how we're going to do it for for um, the holiness clause, the uh, Leviticus stuff. <laughs> but by the very end of the chapter, we hear, and Rahab lived among the people to that day. Now, we don't know exactly what happened with Rahab and her husband, Salmon. We know uh, who her son was. Uh, legend, tradition, not legend, but tradition has it that Salmon was one of the spies. I guess that would make sense. We don't know that. That's just Hebrew tradition. What we do know is that Rahab and Salmon had a son named Boaz. And without stepping on Jazz's sermon next week too much, I think it's fascinating that one of the definitive characteristics of Boaz is his respect and honour of women as the son of a prostitute. Fascinating. God's faithfulness is deeper than ours. God's solutions are better than our wildest prayers. The prayers you are praying for your deepest pains right now, God's solutions are bigger, better, more holistic, more far-reaching than any of them. And some of you have stepped far enough down the journey of faith that you've seen this. And most of us need to experience it again. You taste it once and then you're like, great. And you sort of coast along there and you forget. But again and again, God says, no, no, no. You need to work your faith like a muscle. Like it's so important. They do little Sunday school songs about it. Like you've got to work that faith like a muscle. You've got to practice it again and again. You've got to, if you have though just this much faith, just a seed of faith, watch what I can do with it. And friends, if you've come to church today and you, you don't know what to expect from God, maybe this is new for you. Maybe you've come from far away. Maybe you're coming back to Jesus and you're like, I just don't know what I'm going to expect from God. I don't know what God's going to expect from me. I don't know how I feel about God. There's a lot of emotions going around. All you need is this much faith. The tiny seed of faith, a mustard seed of faith, a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, and God will use it for something powerful. And it won't be what you want. It'll be what you need. Bigger, better, but you've got to trust him. Hey, Ben, you guys can come back up if you want. Um, but you might, you might have come today and, and you just got a bit of a past, like Rahab. Right? I, like, I, I explained in some detail about Rahab's past earlier. 
You probably don't have a past like that. But if you do, there's grace for you. There is new life for you. There is total redemption for you. Because one of the things that we believe so firmly at Encounter, because we know this is who God is, is that God loves you just as you are, and He loves you too much to leave you as you are. He'll meet you exactly where you are. You do not have to behave the right way to get God's approval. It doesn't work that way. You can't. What you can do is believe. Say, God, I've, I've got a little bit of faith in me. Would you take that? Would you grow it? Would you transform me? Because I, I think this is all I have. I think this is all I have right now. And God is the God who meets people exactly where they're at. He welcomes you into his family and you cannot control everything. You can't control all your situations. You can control how you respond to God. When God says, follow me, what are you going to do? When God says a little bit of faith, what are you going to do? When God says jump, what are you going to do? Take that small piece of faith and leap. Let me pray.